The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today, we're going to bring you a special guest episode with Lila Nordstrom and Brent Thornburg, the hosts of Brain Trust Live, which is a long-running political podcast that just published its 415th episode this week. We respect the hell out of these two for their perseverance, their knowledge, and also their darkly comedic approach to what really amounts to the very often devastating political realities we've all been facing in the 21st century. We're so happy to have them with us here with us today on what basically amounts to our first panel show with five people to help our viewers and listeners make sense of the madness. And wow, do we have a lot to talk about. We'll cover the Democratic devastation in the Virginia gubernatorial election, the squeaker in New Jersey, and what happened up and down tickets in this off-year election that looms very large in significance for what it tells us about the mood of the country and Democratic prospects in the 2022 midterms. But first, I want to remind you to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. And please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the radical secular. We'd really appreciate your support, even if it's just buying us a cup of coffee every month. We have support tiers from $3 a month on up. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. So let's introduce our guests. Lila Nordstrom is a Los Angeles-based writer. In 2006, she formed an advocacy group called Sty Health, which represents students who were exposed to the World Trade Center cleanup after 9-11. Since then, she has worked to raise awareness about issues surrounding access to health monitoring and treatment for 9-11 victims. In 2019, she testified before Congress to support the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund renewal and won the Bronze Medallion, New York City's highest civic honor. Her efforts have also been honored by the Manhattan Borough President and featured in the New York Times, Economist, New York Daily News, New York Post, Village Voice, New York Sun, Downtown Express, Metro New York, AM New York, and by CBS, Fox, NBC, New York One, WABAI, and others. She has also written about these issues for the Huffington Post and The Guardian. Lila also has a new book out, Some Kids Left Behind, A Survivor's Fight for Healthcare in the Wake of 9-11. Welcome to the show, Lila. Thank you. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And so let me introduce Brent now. Brent Thornburg is a Los Angeles-based writer-producer specializing in television promotion and branding. He has worked on numerous projects for both broadcast and cable networks. Originally from Iowa, Brent was fascinated with politics from an early age and has volunteered for numerous campaigns and causes. Welcome, Brent. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, um, let's talk about our T-shirts. Uh, why, don't, why don't you go first, Brent and Lila? Oh, sure. We decided to finally pull out of the closet the um, the freebie T-shirts that we received when we went on a sort of, I would call it just like a campaign speculation trip to Iowa in 2019. We went to the Iowa State Fair. We visited every single major candidate's office to figure out what their ground game in Iowa was going to be. And a bunch of them, really the more desperate among them, gave us free t-shirts. And so um, I am in an Amy Klobuchar shirt that has more text on it than any one t-shirt has ever seen in 
I think I'm going to say you stand up. It's like, there's this part of it, which is just Amy Klobuchar will beat Donald Trump, but I actually think the back of it is more important. Which is, of all the reasons that she's going to beat Donald Trump, who can possibly, like, who approved the copy for that t-shirt? They were giving them out. Oh, this was actually at the actual caucus, because these, we got these at her Super Bowl party. We got those, yeah, we we watched the Super Bowl with Amy Kovacar during during the Iowa caucus. Did you? That's kind of cool. I'm wearing a John Delaney for president one. Nice, nice, cool. We got that from, we went to his office, and we met the woman there, and then hilariously saw her later after Delaney dropped out she was working for Tom Steyer. So she's a person who really wanted to make sure a billionaire or a millionaire, but very rich person. Yeah. Was but, um, they had a lot of swag at the Delaney office yeah. and they were having a hard time unloading it. They gave us a book. They gave us bumper stickers. Oh yeah, we have John Delaney. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's uh, cool. That's great. That's have great. always wondered, we've had it in our closet forever. Right. And we've sort of had Never always, had we've, we always assumed at some point it would be like sort of, kitsch, I yeah. guess, to have these. Yeah. And I don't know if it's been long enough. Probably not. Like, I certainly wouldn't write this out in public, I don't think, probably. Like, <laughs> dropped out while, like, right after he was given the show. That's true. It's been years. And also, no one remembers that he ran in yeah. the first place. Right. All it's, I can remember is one very specific John Delaney billboard that we kept yeah. seeing outside of, the, like, the one gay club in uh, <laughs> that I just thought was such odd placement. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> Also, oh. we may have to start pretending to be moderates now, since it seems like progressives ruined America this week. Right, right? I, I, yeah, apparently, right. right. <laughs> Caused the downfall of, you know. So we're ready <laughs> Once to go again, and right? yeah. at a moment's notice. Well, those are great shirts. And I mean, it's like, a kid, if you can imagine, like, we don't remember even most of the successful campaigns, let alone the failed campaigns, right? <laughs> right. True. Um, true. All right, well, Joe, what are you rocking on a T-shirt today? Well, well, it's a little different, but like I have the the five captains of the enterprises, and I'm thinking like hey. you know, 2024, a January Cisco ticket. You know, what do you think about that? <laughs> I'm all for it. No, Sign I mean, me like up, man. honestly, it's a guidepost for us in the show. We like the principles of the show. I mean, you think about it. In 1960s, the show started, right? And at that time, they were you know, they were promoting like really progressive principles in the show in the 1960s in a time in our society when a lot of really cool social progress happened, right? And now we're seeing sort of <laughs> the opposite side of that in many ways, right? And one of the things we should talk about in this show. Definitely. Well, I see, Christoph, you've got your Joe Biden shirt on, which... Uh... Yes, I'm wearing my Joe Biden shirt again. This is week two of my Joe Biden shirt. And, I'm, it be, and the reason why I'm wearing it today... Um, again, is because um, uh, because everyone loves to shit on Joe Biden right now, and um, and and I and I get that, uh, but I but for reasons that we'll talk about later on in the show, um, I still think we it, it's still important to be to be clear eyed about what our options are as a as a as a sort of dualistic system, um, the dualistic political system. I mean, like, right, the cards that were dealt are the cards that were dealt. Um, so anyway, and, and, and the other thing I want to talk about, this is particularly an African-Americans for Joe Biden t-shirt. And um, and you back, Joe Biden won the primary on the backs of, oh, that's a weird way to put it, on the backs of African-Americans. <laughs> yeah. um, 
You know, uh, but 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 he did, right? That's why he won. And one thing that African Americans are, are consistently, what I've seen, consistently do is say to themselves, like, "Look, who is the guy who has a, has has a chance to win?" Right? Even if they might like someone else's policies better, right? Who is the guy who, who's actually going to win this election? Right? Because because black people know that white people cannot be trusted. That is what black people know. Black people know that. Black people right. know that you cannot trust. Where you can't trust white people to vote for uh, in, in, in large enough numbers to, to get Bernie Sanders into office because he would help everybody. And that would disrupt this, this sort of hierarchy that we talk about on this show all the time. Right. Yep. The sort of the. Uh, and anyway, we can get into that later. But that's why I'm wearing it today. Happy yeah. to have you guys on the show, by the way. You two are fucking hilarious. <laughs> I love it. I love your show. And, and, and you guys are you guys have already off the bat said a lot of really funny ass shit. Yeah, that, that is very true. Well, I, I have to second the motion, Christoph. I'm, of course, reading while uh, wearing my Biden Harris shirt. And, you know, I have to quote my friend Daryl. And this is what he said before the election last year. And he said, basically, Joe Biden is driving the only bus out of shithole America. And that is still the fucking truth right now. Uh, and and regardless of what his approval rating is doing and regardless of how we all may be smarting from this election, Joe Biden is our man. There's nobody. Nobody's going to replace him. Nobody is going to. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. It's like way too far in, in advance right now. But, um, you know, we this is this is. Biden is our guy. And so, you know, we, everything we're talking about here is, is with that background. So that's pretty much it for the t-shirts. Let's start though, talking about this recent election disaster, which is the tagline for our episode, which is how do we keep losing to these clowns? And (laughs) the title of the episode is is there any hope for Democrats? And that's a little bit tongue in cheek because uh, of course we have hope for Democrats, but at the same time, you know, we, I feel a little bit like I felt in 2010 or 2014, like we're in this situation where Republicans are already screwing everything up. They're already blocking everything. And now they just, you know, won again, like how can Americans not see this? So um, but I'm just wondering, you know, and this is something I want to talk about and we'll we'll get into this later. Is this just a countdown to, you know, the GOP flipping the House in 2022 and a truly stolen presidential election in 2024? And it's always tempting to blame Republican lies, propaganda, dark money and psyops when Democrats lose. It's a whole lot easier than taking a harsh look at our own party. We've known Republicans play dirty since the Reagan administration. Christoph and I are constantly talking about Republican bad faith on the show. We know it. You know it. The leadership of the Democratic Party knows it. Joe Biden knows it. And yet somehow we never seem to get our counter messaging right or even have any sort of counter message. And there's that famous quote attributed to Karl Rove that he said during the the George W. Bush years. And it goes like this. You people are in what we call the reality based community defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. That's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now. And when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, will act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors and you, all of you will be left to just study what we do. Now, that quote is chilling, not only in its arrogance, but also in how it describes standard GOP operating procedure for pretty much the entire Trump era. We got a preview of this under Bush but they've dialed it up to 11 now in the so-called post-truth era. Any sort of tether the Republican Party ever had to reality is so far in the rearview mirror, you might have to go back to Eisenhower to find it, or at least before Newt Gingrich. So (laughs) my first question for you, Brent and Lila, is 
How is it the Democrats still haven't adapted to these straw man culture war tactics Republicans have been using since the Nixon administration? And what can we do about it going forward? I really want to drill down into these endless culture war issues. Democrats get so exasperated that Republicans won't talk about the real and serious issues facing the American people that we don't talk about them at all either. And we seem to be stuck in the mode of trying to make procedural gains and trash talking Trump. What's the strategy for changing this? God, if we had the answer to that, I feel like we'd be making millions as political. Con- well, no, we wouldn't be because no one would ever hire a political consultant to actually give them the answer to the question. Because they don't want to change this. I mean, this is, we're talking about two parties that are both beholden to donor bases, that are both invested in maintaining a status quo. And I think, you know, I said something recently on our podcast that I've been thinking about a lot my own genius. I've been thinking about my own genius a lot. Um, (laughs) In a world where both parties are responsible for cruel policy, where the Democrats can't admit that something like paid leave would actually tangibly impact people's lives. It's a Democrat that's blocking that, not Republicans, you know, in the, in the sort of media narrative, even Um, in that world where no party is interested in gaining meaningful traction or messaging effectively on, on a goals based issue on something where we really feel like we can understand what the impact will be tangibly then it really, really matters that someone like Donald Trump or just the Republicans in general are so entertaining on television. Like, in a world where nothing is happening, I would rather watch an hour of Donald Trump speaking than an hour of Joe Biden speaking. And I'm sorry about that. That's embarrassing to say. I found the Trump stakes press conference to be the most riveting hour of television I have ever experienced in my life. And I say that as someone who knew how horrifying it was while it was happening. But I mean, like, in a world where we're not actually seeing action from either party, or we are only seeing, you know, conservative actions and, or we're only seeing action happen under conservative presidents. I mean, the last time we saw anything actually happen meaningfully legislatively that tangibly impacted our lives, Donald Trump was the president and our stimulus package was coming through and we saw checks arrive in our inboxes. Like these, these kinds of uh, sort of messaging fails where the Democrats don't identify the goal, first of all, because they're afraid to say the goal because their donors will be mad about the goal and then don't pursue the goal and then become the force that actually blocks the goal uh, is, well, it's sort of endemic to how they operate, but it, it's it's not something that like, I think a better strategy can break the stranglehold of. I think they need to sort of rethink how they're going to fund their operation if they really want to be a, a sort of catalyst for any sort of change ever. Yeah. And I think in, in regards to the culture wars, you know, not only do we sort of like, not only do we not have our own animating issue in any way. You know, I mean, like you, we're going to talk certainly about Virginia. And I think a lot of people are pointing to CRT and things like that, you know, and and certainly that probably did move some people to the polls. But like, not only do we not have whatever our own version of that is to sort of scare up votes, because whether we like it or not, that really is why people vote. But we're not even there was no active pushback against Mm -hmm. that either. You know, like at a bare minimum, there should be like there should be some pushback, right? <laughs> Outside of just handing out copies of Beloved at your it's campaign rally, but Terry McAuliffe did has like, already read Beloved. So it's I, not even know, a good free book to give out. I think it's <laughs> read it in school. Um, so I don't know. I think we're honestly the Democratic Party. I feel like is a long way away from like getting it here. So I think in 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 answer to your your broader question about is are we just on our way to a, a loss in 2022. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> yes, unfortunately, there are things that could change that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think, and we'll probably talk about that as well. So it doesn't have to be that way. But I think 
as of the day that we are recording this, it is that way, I think. Also, probably. I think the, the culture we're framing is not always that helpful either. I've been thinking a lot about this because my parents are actually living in a conservative community in upstate New York. This is a community that voted for Trump. It's a community where Democrats never win. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, because they've been working on hyper local issues, what what we need to do to sort of appeal to people who have kind of no shared national political reality with us in order to convince them that the lo- we share local realities. And I think to some degree, like a lot of those people are not, they're unreasonable when it comes to sort of a f- sort of amorphous politics. They're unreasonable when you talk about the issues they're hearing on Fox News, but they also want the town to have a sewer system and they also care about the roads and they also care about some tangible things that impact their lives. And so the, the fact that maybe they disagree on like abortion rights is not actually that relevant to the kinds of meaningful policy that actually create tangible impacts on people's lives. Those are all straw man issues. Those are all bullshit. Like it's, I, I, as someone who, you know, cares deeply about reproductive rights and really on this podcast is the person who should most care deeply about reproductive rights. <laughs> yeah. I, I also yeah. recognize that that's a complete bullshit political argument to be having with people. That shouldn't be something that defines what political party you belong to. It shouldn't be what animates you to go to the polls. It shouldn't be a conversation we're having. The conversations we're having should be about things that actually do exist in a shared tangible reality. Reproductive rights don't because they only affect half the population in a tangible way. I mean, they 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 can theoretically affect everyone else, but like a lot of these culture war issues that we're fighting are, are cynical distraction tactics. And the Democrats have been really yeah. bad about using their own rhetoric to kind of frame out of those issues and move towards issues that tangibly impact everybody in a meaningful way. Like they they let themselves get drawn into like, what week should we allow abortions at? And like, that isn't actually a question they should answer. They should be like, that's not our business. That's your doctor's business. Also, have you thought about paid leave? Have you thought about how you're going to take care of babies when you have them? Have you thought about medical bills? Like they, they, they oftentimes get wrapped up in culture war issues that they should not even be addressing, in my opinion, in, in at least the way that they sort of tend to like, you know, grasp onto them. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point also about how easy it is to get people to agree on local issues like fixing the streets or or, or whatever it is. And yet now Republicans are riding in, creating another hyper-local issue, which is the whole school board thing. That is that is AstroTurf on steroids. I mean, yeah. this is Coke money. This is all sorts of, of big money going into these school board races now because they realize that that's where you block the Democrats' momentum towards getting any unity at all. What do you guys think, uh, uh, Joe and Chris? Well, those, those are a lot of great points. Well, except for the listening to Donald Trump for an hour. I'm sorry, I don't do horror. <laughs> <Sometimes. laughs> but other than that, I think you made some great points. But here's the thing, guys. I mean, like we're, we're complaining about like a football game and not noticing that there's, there's tons of gopher holes all over the field, right? We have to look at the state of the democracy we're in right now. And, and I think one of the things you, we've seen is a degradation of democracy in the United States. If you look at global indices, like it shows that for in a lot of them we're actually now labeled as a flawed democracy there's been a mm-hmm. there's been a real degradation and i think that's playing into this a, a great deal because it's not a fair playing field anymore 
And, it, it, you know, if you look at voter participation rates in the United States, they're just woeful compared to other con similar countries. If you look at uh, gender parity among politicians, it's just we just don't do well compared to many countries, even in like developing countries. Um, there's, a, there's so many ways that we have we have like these structural problems in our in our democracy that really play to these shenanigans. Like if we if we did not have these inequities, we would be a whole different political landscape in this country right now. It wouldn't even look like it looks like now. And so I think we have to consider that too as well. And, and well, the reason why I say this is because it goes back to voter rights. And now this is what we need to really push right now. And where did, what happened to it? Where is it? Like, why can't we do, make some procedural changes to the filibuster so we can get this through? I mean, there's no excuse for that in my mind. And, and, the, and the Democrats should be fairly criticized for that as well, for not really playing the hardball game. And they should be. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that a bit later. Uh, what are your thoughts, Christoph? Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, uh, I agree in large part with everything that's been said so far. I, I, I think that, right, I mean, the, the GOP has a built-in advantage, right? They, It's a lot easier to tear things down than it is to, to build things, right? Um, and, and sort of their entire goal is to muddy the water so that you don't have to talk about the issues where if we do, if we, if we were talking about bread and butter issues that were, that, that, that you all are, are, are talking about, the sewer system, et cetera, we would win on that. Democrats and progressives would win on that every single time those ideas are popular but they're but they are distorted through their through the right wing ecosystem uh, media ecosystem and and so muddying the water is what they, it's all they really have to do and the other element is that they really just they they do a really good job of appealing to humanity's most powerful instincts right you talked you, you talked about this earlier Lila you talked about fear right um, you talked about and we and another thing I'd add on to that is 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 hierarchy basically um, sort of you know uh, the, the the goal for the, the drive for status, right? Um, they make they they make they make white um, white conservatives think that the Democrats want to come and take their status for one, basically a financial status, right? They want to put everyone on the same playing field. Men, uh, men, including Latinos, we're going to talk about. We could talk about that a little bit later. Um, feel like they, that Democrats want to take away their manness in the man woman relationship, right? And then also there's the and then they they also appeal to piety, right? And this hope for uh, and and religion and all this sort of thing, which is also a huge human flaw. So, um, uh, in my opinion, so um, and so, I, and I think that makes it a lot Second. easier. And then if you're a, and then if as a dem, as a Democrat, you are a first of all, uh, we have a really fractured tent, right, with a lot of different ideas and a lot of different people. And also, we don't understand power, right? So uh, Republicans understand human nature, they understand power, and they don't mean to understand it, right? They are just being driven by those things, but they know exactly how to, to hit people. And, and, and we just don't. And I, and I don't think, I think that Sanders is really good by creating essentially a boogeyman, because that's what you really have to do, right? The 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 elites, the billionaires, right? All these people that are out there, and, and the idea is that you want to but create this this idea in people's heads that there's literally somebody with tented fingers in a smoky room, right, <laughs> making making these arguments because that's what they do to us. That is literally yeah. what they do to us all the time. And so Sanders was really good at that, and that appeals to a really important part of the human brain that 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 can really activate people. And um and and we need to find a way to do that as Democrats without sacrificing our values. And that is a hard hard um hard uh, sort of line to walk and. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, 
Biden for all his, Biden is 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 bad in the sense that he doesn't excite people. Right. Um, but I don't think that if you swap out Sanders or someone else, that suddenly everything's different. Like that's what I that's what drives me nuts about this narrative after after this election. That's bullshit. And that's another misunderstanding of how power works. Right. The power. And, and we have a legislative tie in the in, in, in or, or governmental power tie right now. And that tie always goes to conservatives every single time. That's where we are. And mm-hmm. so. I, I don't buy the argument that like if you just swapped out another another executive that we'd have a different that we'd have a different a, a different scenario. So that that's my no. that's my shit there. I mean, Obama was so much more charismatic, and it didn't seem to matter. He was still treated horribly uh, by the Republicans. But these are all people that are still beholden to a certain donor base. That this I is think true. The, the one difference is just the ability to actually say what you mean. So. As much as like strategically, like we were promised the benefit of a Biden presidency is that he could work with these people. He could be the one who spoke to conservatives. He could speak to moderate Democrats. It doesn't seem he actually has that power. And in a world where you don't have that power, the better long game strategy is to name your goal. And he does not want to name a goal. (laughs) Like, you know, his, his, his messaging doesn't allow us to unify around a goal, which is, I think, the thing that, you know, from from the progressive perspective is frustrating as as a long game strategy. I always try to think in the long game because, you know, the power dynamics are always screwed up in the short term. And there's always some complicating factor that's going on. There's always a filibuster reform that needs to be made. There's always (laughs) a a person with a shitty donor. There's the fact that Joe Manchin, you know, drives a Maserati. The rotating villain. The rotating villain, exactly. (laughs) Like at the end of the day, our long game has to be, you know, it has to be conceived of by people that can name a goal and that, you know, without that ability, without the ability to message a goal, which is really what the moderate Democrats lack, you really can't ever break out of this stranglehold because you just keep getting sucked back into the rotating villain conversation. I absolutely agree with you on that one. And I think that's that a great point. The, the Democrats need to really spark the, the imagination of the country. And the only way to do that is to have this vision. You know, let's go to right. the moon. Let's do something, right? Let, and let's get there. And and I think at the policy level, great. We want to make progress on the policy level. We want infrastructure and all that, but we need vision, right? And I think the progressive part of the Democratic Party is a lot better at that than, mm-hmm. than the centrists. They're a lot Definitely. better. And, then, and, and I think we need to learn from them, right? It, it, and then we're not doing that as well as, you, as we should. Infrastructure is kind of a, of a of a shitty word anyway, because it means yeah. so many different things. And it's been expanded. I mean, I think that Democrats were smart to expand infrastructure to include social services. Right. I mean, like like, you know, if you if you're a worker who doesn't have childcare, then, you know, you can't do your job. So that like that, that was that was smart. But at the same time it gets kind of around having to make the, really make the case for these things. And, and I want to, I want to turn now to some of the postmortems that we've heard and just go through some of them and just see where everybody is on all of that. Cause listening to the CNN panel on election night was practically sheer torture. I mean, those guys, I mean, they might as, I felt like I was watching Fox. Okay. And it was everything I could do to sit there and endure this pontificating and finger wagging. And I, I finally got so pissed that I turned it off and I'm not really totally clear on who said what, and frankly, I just don't care because um, it was just a it was just a, a a pile on. And I don't think one person on the panel got it right, although some of them may have gotten pieces of it right. Uh, Van Jones said it was a five alarm fire for Democrats, which it is, and 
He's not wrong. Uh, he also called Glenn Youngkin, I thought this was hilarious, the Delta variant of Trumpism. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. You know he thought of that and was like, all day uh, yeah. on TV, I'm going to Oh, yeah. Right. This is my point <laughs> yeah. yeah. for today. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's always got some quotable quote like that. <laughs> yeah. You got to give that to him. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of gold. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's also kind of famous and his famous thing is for telling vicious political opponents that they need to understand each other and they kind of hug yes. it out. And I find that hilarious too. Um, <laughs> that is <yeah>. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the panelists though, all kept casting the lost in terms of Democrats having misjudged the mood of the country, blaming progressives for pushing the party too far left, predicting that Biden would tack right in response, possibly scaling back the social spending bill. And then others brought up the difficulties posed by not having passed the bill already, which, you know, I don't even want to like, don't get me started about that circus. <laughs> but yeah. a couple days later, uh, James Carville piled on at blaming wokeness, which plays right into enemy hands. I can't even imagine That's the gloating about that going on. in GFB. <laughs> It's what? That's often his specialty, I feel like, is to say <laughs> one thing that he thinks is really clever, but plays directly into GOP messaging. <laughs> Completely. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, he's, he's ma- kind isn't of in he this... married to what's her name now? She's married Mary Madeline? to Madeline. Yeah. yeah, Madeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting uh, dinner conversations they must have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those books again. <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of liked, though, uh, Rachel Maddow's take a little better. She pointed out that in Virginia and New Jersey, the governorships have gone to the opposite party one year after every presidential election going all the way back to George H.W. Bush. And we actually held one governorship this year, and she thinks that's a positive outcome. I agree. I mean, that's your state, Christoph. So, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a squeaker. We were all on pins and needles over here, man. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, Joe Walsh said something kind of useful. He said the Democrats don't know how to fight back on culture war issues. And he says that he's considering becoming a Democrat to help out, which, you know, like, we will take him. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't we know. Will. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's probably, is he's, he's not welcome in his own party, I guess. I was right? going to say, he point, might as so well. Like, he needs a place to go. Sounds like a man who needs a new home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he, he keeps, like, getting, like, little pieces of why liberals are liberal, why progressives are progressive. And he keeps kind of, he'll come out with some statement. It's like, yeah, well, we could have told you that 20 years ago. Where were you then? You know. <laughs> uh, finally, there was an article in the New York Times that outlined a suggestion for a Democratic pivot to really hitting Republicans hard with what they called the race class narrative. Very interesting article by Tori Gavito and Adam Gentleson that I'm going to link to in the show notes. And there's some grains of truth in all those postmortems, along with the bullshit. I'm not sure that any of those takes are the last word. And of course, we're all interested to hear both of your thoughts and, and everyone's thoughts on that question. I mean, I have to I have to think that first off, whenever you're dealing with some sort of race like that, like which is essentially a, ro- a local race, if we're talking about the Virginia governor, right? Like certainly there are national headwinds, like no one is here to deny that. But also, you know, you can look at the fact that, well, that stat that you told me the other day about like, no, uh, they have strong term limits in Virginia. You're only allowed one term and it almost always changed. The incumbent almost never makes a comeback. That's only happened once in history. And the one time it happened, the guy changed parties. 
So the fact that we even thought it was safe to run Terry McAuliffe was like banana pants crazy. Uh, Virginia just does not have a taste for a second go around with the same person. They're not Jerry Browning. So there's that happening. And then you can look at also specific campaign things. I mean, you know, certainly part of the big reason why some of this education stuff came up in the first place was because of a pretty epic gaffe that Terry McAuliffe had in one of the debates where he said that parents shouldn't, I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said parents shouldn't be able to decide what their kids are taught in school. Now, if you listen to his whole statement, I think he sort of like got to a clarifying point at that point. But like, you know, I think that there's at to start with, you sort of like have to be like, well, Terry McAuliffe is just a loser. So there's that thing. So and obviously there were additional things. I think the I think the blaming of moving too far to the left is that blows my mind because that was an incredibly exciting primary field where there were historic candidates that had huge grassroots support. People were very excited for like, you know, Foy or like some of these other women that were really like emerging in the middle, you know, early on in that primary field. And Terry McAuliffe did the thing. He did the Joe Biden thing where he kind of swooped in with all of this big money support and kind of bought his way into the role by claiming he was the most electable. But in fact, the Democratic voters in that state were showing that they were interested in moving in another direction. And that was very clear by who was getting you know, heat in that primary. And so the fact that anyone thought that like a Clintonite needed to come in and save everyone from this chaotic primary, I mean, the Democrats hate their own primaries, which is so ridiculous because primaries are how you find out where your voters are. And they the reason they can never read where their voters are is because they interfere in their own primaries in an effort to not have progressives win anything. And then they can't find out that everyone was progressive in the end of, at the end of the day. So, like, you know, we see this happen again and again where national party concerns kind of swoop into these what you know to to high profile bellwether races and tell the voters there what they want to what they want them to think and i think that virginians were not interested in what terry mcgauliffe wanted them to think or what the sort of larger national party wanted them to think about what kind of voters they were because they were showing us a very different side of them in the early primary conversations and we decided that that we should buy our way into ignoring them. And that's not a great election strategy, especially when you know that you're going to be in a difficult legislative season where it's possible that this infrastructure season is going to continue to be an infrastructure decade. Like it's possible that, you know, we knew that it was possible things weren't going to get accomplished because we blow past literally every deadline that we set for ourselves nationally. So we know that nationally it's possible that we can't run on big policy changes. That's fine. Like if you you know, decide that you're going to hinge your entire campaign in this huge high profile bellwether election on a national figure with national money and kind of ignore the the whims of the local voters. You set yourself up for this kind of failure, which is famously, well, it's what we like to do. So, I mean, it's a yeah. famous strategy. <laughs> <laughs> How do we change that? I mean, what are your thoughts, uh, Christoph and Joe? Go ahead, Joe. Well, I mean, look at some of the local elections, like in Boston, like Michelle Wu. I mean, it's like some really good candidates made it in. And why? Because they're local and they actually exactly did what you're just suggesting. They listen to the local sentiments. And there is a lot of, you know, I'm so sick of this, like, too left. I mean, what is too left about, like, universal human rights? What is too left about one person, one vote? 
or having infrastructure or having family leave or any of those issues that people care about. In comparison to, you have this extremist right-wing agenda, which is really out there and really far right. And they're doing, they're succeeding with it. So, I mean, there's this narrative that it's, that we're going, that the left is too left, I think is a dog whistle to deny people basic human rights more than anything else. It has to do with transgender rights. It has to do with the, the rights of people of color. It has to do with the rights of women, because that's really what the culture war is about and where they frame everything. And I think we just keep falling for it. Like Sean, you said earlier, we just keep falling for it. And the left just plays into that narrative and gets defensive instead of creating its own counter narrative, which we need to do. I mean, there's only six countries on this planet that don't have parental leave now. Right. And like the five other ones are like Papua New Guinea and like and islands in the Pacific, like like every single civilized or advanced you know, an economic country and everyone else behind them has paid parental leave now and, and the United States doesn't. It drives and, me nuts. The whole thing drives me nuts. Like, like, what is the purpose of all this? Why are we, why are we even have this thing called civilization, right? Right. Why have I a mean, that's extremist. if it doesn't do anything? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what, uh, the Democrats have to hammer that. I mean, like, what the hell are you talking about extremists? You're the extremists, yeah. right? Let's have pay parental leave like everybody else. Well, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the it seems like, you know, per the exit polls, it seems like really one of the groups that really flipped from the the, the presidential election was white women. Yeah. And certainly some of this education stuff was driving that the whole CRT nonsense was driving that. And so, yes, do we need to figure out what our response to that is coming up in the midterms because they're going to keep using that? Yes, 100%. We absolutely do need to figure out what our response to that is. But I also refuse to believe that some of those people couldn't be moved back to us by really hitting universal pre-K, right? Because these are, right. these are mothers probably, right? Universal pre-K, paid family leave. These are, you know, oftentimes the women are dealing with like things, you know, like obviously they would have loved their prescription costs for their family to be lower, right? Like, I just, I refuse to believe that, like, yes, we have to figure out our answer to, like, some of these, uh, some, you know, some of these social issues. But, like, I also feel like if you really do hammer some of those things home, there's no way that that doesn't move people. I just refuse to believe that that doesn't move people. I think it does. And I think um, I, I want I want to I'm, I'm going to skip because I was going to bring this up in another question. I want to skip down uh, to that right now, because since we're already talking about it and, and because it seems a little bit like, yes, we have to hit these other issues, but we have to have a response also. And because I saw this hot take from SE Cup and she was talking about these white suburban moms. And of course, it's a, a lot of them are non-college educated. And because because the, the college educated white suburban moms were fine. They, they voted for, for yeah. McAuliffe. But um, but there's this huge swing. Non-college women who voted for Biden switched and voted for Youngkin. And she's blaming the statement that you, you already brought up about uh, Terry mm -hmm. McAuliffe saying that parents shouldn't have a, a say in their kids' education. For the loss. And this is something that we have. 
we're going to get hammered on this again and again. And, and it's clear that society has an interest in ensuring that kids learn common and secular values in spite of their parents' desire to indoctrinate them in whatever flavor of religious or political ideology. This is, we can't shrink from this. And this is why it's important that prayer is not in public schools because kids of many different religions attend those schools. It wouldn't be fair for any of them to engage in sectarian rituals, just like it wouldn't be fair to, to educate them either as, you know, Democrat or Republican values. They, they need to be taught neutral history, neutral values. And, and this sort of gets to the core of what we're about as a show at The Radical Secular, ensuring that everyone in society has equal opportunity and that no particular viewpoint or religion is allowed to dominate or control important social goals like education. But this is a sticky wicket for sure, because no parent wants to be told that they can't make decisions about their children. It's practically as sacred a right as anyone can imagine, the ability to control how a child grows up. Since the Civil Rights Act and school desegregation, this has often included a strong desire on the part of parents to send their kids to private schools, especially religious schools, to avoid the official secularism and racial neutrality of the public school system. So in 2021, the latest manifestation of white cultural anxiety is, of course, the freakout about critical race theory, which isn't really taught to kids at all anywhere in any state but it ends up being a focal point and a boogeyman for a lot of white parents. It's a straw man argument, of course, for opposing any form of culturally neutral teaching of history, and it's leading to a new round of calls for removing books these parents consider offensive. In Texas, there's a list of about 850 books that these parents want to purge from their school curricula and libraries. So it's just been a relentless attack on public education, and that's a whole other subject, particularly when you consider the large number of kids who are being homeschooled and the white Christian nationalist backing for the homeschool movement, which produces kids who are both ignorant and radicalized and unprepared for college or life in a pluralistic society. So my question for you, Brent and Lila, is this is a much larger issue. How do we politically walk that line in the culture war without losing elections between respecting the rights of parents to decide how their kids are educated versus the interests of the state and the broader population to ensure a common baseline standard of education? You couldn't be asking two more qualified people because we don't have children. And we, have, we, have, uh, we have parents who are teachers. I was going to say, we're both the children, we're both the children of educators. Yeah. Uh, both okay. the children of public school teachers. Um, so I guess in that sense, we, I can't, I mean, like, I think to some extent, this is a, this is a pushback to a conversation that I think is actually a positive conversation where, first of all, they've accidentally taught everyone what critical race theory is, which is, uh, it's sad uh, yeah. for them. Sad side effect of having <laughs> humanized it in this way. But I think that the reason that we're seeing this pushback is largely because we were not taught a completely unbiased version of American history in our educations. That's something that's still evolving. That's something that we, even as adults, have to continue to evolve on. And this is really pushback that is related to the fact that I think we're starting to think about what the gaps were that the rest of us you know, saw in our own educations as we were learning about American history and as we were learning about how American democracy works. And so I think to some extent, the focus on the um, on the pushback to it is kind of the wrong focus. I think the, the focus should always continue to be on how to drive more sort of like a, a more honest telling of American history into the public schools, regardless of how many times like people are freaking out. Because the other reality I think that's really different um, for a lot of the kids that end up with these, you know, sort of biased educations, it's like they have the Internet now, which we didn't have. So, like, part of this is parents freaking out because their kids actually do have access to a lot of information that they would like them to not have access to. That wasn't something that was true when we were kids. 
So, you know, the public education system was where I learned American history. And then later I had to go and read books that taught me that everything I knew about it was wrong. And mm -hmm. then, you know, it was like an enormous waste of my time. But I, I think yeah. that to some extent, you know, this is parents, this, this, this sort of tenor of this conversation is parents freaking out about a much bigger issue, which is just that their kids have access to information that they can't control no matter what they do about it. And this conversation is ultimately going to be irrelevant because the parents will ultimately be people who also grew up this way. Yeah, I guess at least politically anyway, I have a little bit of fears that the Democrats are not going to really know how to to talk about this. And part of what the pushback should be is to, like, as you said, you know, I think people now know what CRT is, although not enough because there were a lot of people, I think people were, were interviewed like outside of polling play in exit polls, you know, it's just like, oh, well, I don't, I don't like CRT. And then the follow-up question is, what is it? And they're it's like, like well, I don't know. Um, they don't, nobody but, has any idea. <laughs> right, you know? But I think that like, my fear is that like, instead of actually sort of like, pushing a conversation about why it's important to not necessarily teach CRT in our schools, but like teach, teach a more full telling of history in our schools. The response is going to be a bunch of Democrats running in 2022 who also are going around declaring that they don't want CRT taught in schools. Right. Like this yeah. is a thing that I feel mm -hmm. like we see frequently with, you know, we're probably also going to be running a lot of people who are in law enforcement in 2022, right? Because of the pushback mm. after the war, every, a, every, yeah. for a while, every Democratic congressional candidate had to be a veteran. Right. Like, right. right. Like we didn't want to be like seen as, you know, weak, you know, in the in the wake of, uh, you know, some recent wars. So, like, my fear is that this conversation is not going to be had in any sort of substantive way. And it's just going to be us running away from the conversation entirely, which is not helpful. And it certainly doesn't won't serve them well in elections. I yeah, actually, I, I was thinking about this in terms of so I have a perfect passenger score on Lyft. I don't have boy, <laughs> but I have a perfect passenger score in Lyft. And I also um, talk about politics with every single Lyft driver that I ever get in to the car with, especially around elections. I will engage literally anyone in a political conversation in a Lyft, which is dangerous awesome. because they are driving and I'm a passenger <laughs> at, their, <laughs> at their whim. But um, the reason that I do it is because it's always an opportunity to have someone meet someone who is on the far left and then have to listen to them for however long the car goes on. And what I always find is that the conversations are always more productive when I am really unapologetic about my positions. And instead, the, the framing of the conversation is just me saying, oh, no, like, I'm in favor of Medicare for all. I am not going to apologize for that. I respect maybe you aren't. But like, here's why I think that that's important. I don't ever kind of try to like, you know, kowtow to their political beliefs. I, I instead just tell them what's on my mind. And I'm just like, that's what I think. You can think whatever you want. Here's what I think. But I think to some degree, like the Democrats are incapable of doing that, where like what we should actually be doing is framing our conversation around what should we be teaching in the schools? What does, yeah. where are the gaps in American education? You know, what are the ways in which we're failing American students? Instead of being like, Oh, no, don't worry. We also don't believe in critical race theory and teaching critical race theory. Don't we're, we're just like you, like explain what it is and why it's important. That's yeah. the frustrating bandwagon effect that mm. happens. And meanwhile, right. You know, think of being a little kid right now. 
because you're getting all these mixed messages, right? I mean, you have your parents might be anti-vax, and then you're and then you're hearing the president say get vaccinated, and you're here, you know, like you're you're getting you're getting it from both sides, and a lot of kids are getting really angry and frustrated about this, and I just want to know like what the what what what's the impact on on kids of this whole insanity going to be? And I don't know if uh, anybody go on this. Well, I can tell you, I you know, as a father of a 23 year old who's kind of on the cusp of that, it's a lot of frustration and anger, and also the potential for completely checking out uh, of the whole process. And I think that's what the danger. You have a lot. You have this wonderful generation coming up. A couple of generations that could be so helpful, and and for them, and for us, and. And the, just the, the the cynicism that's building in these in these young people is just sad. It's so terrible to see, and largely a large part of it is because of the ineffectiveness of our political system now, and especially mm-hmm. Democrats. Democrats have to they have to you know come up with some tangible results. But the problem again goes back to. The, this narrative that the right controls is control of the discourse around the culture war that stops us from being able to talk about the other things. So before we can talk about, you know, family leave and all that, we have to challenge what's blocking our ability to talk about these other really critical issues. And that is the realm of the culture war. They, they, they control the discourse. They frame the discourse. And like you, like you said, and, and Democrats will say, oh, I don't like, I don't like CRT either. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the, you know, that's the result. Instead of what it precisely you sort of outlined is, this is what we should be teaching. This is what's important. That's exactly where we, we're flawed here on, on, on the left. Yeah, it's such a reverse psychology too, because it's like, um, they, they keep reframing. Anytime there's something good, uh, civil rights has now become woke. And it's like, well, you're woke. No, I'm not. You know, and it's just this constant action reaction. Same thing with Dave Chappelle. Like, oh, you're not, you know, if you don't like Dave Chappelle, you know, you're no fun. You don't have, you have no sense of humor. And it's just been this, it's, it's constant pushing of the Overton window. And, and, and so this has to do with education too. It's like, it's like, oh, you're going to teach kids to be woke. Oh, no, I'm not. Right. <clears throat> and so I don't know, Christoph, mm-hmm. what, what's your, how do you see all this? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I really agree on. Uh, I think the big thing, like we say, is is Democrats and Democrats have been doing this since forever, which is I mean, certainly in my lifetime. Right. The, the Clintons did this. Um, uh, and and this is this idea of sort of being like, oh, no, 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 you know, we are actually patriots. We are, you know, we instead of leaning into it. Right. Instead of leaning into it and say, oh, yeah, yeah. By the way, here's what we mean. So my my problem, though, is like when we do get bold about ideas. And we should. Um, I think that first of all, that Sanders is like the king of that, right? Like uh, he, right? He takes Medicare for all and makes and, and builds an entire campaign around that—a very clear, very simple message—and it works. It fucking works. There's no doubt about that. So um, the problem, though, and this is like, and the, the problem though is. That doesn't stop Republicans from from muddying muddying the waters, right? Um, and I guess my concern, and I wonder how you all think about this. I mean, my concern is that appealing to the to, to the good in people. It, it has its shortcomings. It really, really does. Like you know, it, like and that's the bottom line, right? People are selfish, and people are uh, and people love 
love status. People like being above other people. Like that is that is a huge part of being a human being. It's it's built into our DNA. It's built into who we are. And no matter how many trappings of civilization we put on top of that, that is the core of who we are. One of my biggest problems is that that I think that that and I said I said this at the top, and I'll say it again, is that Democrats don't uh, don't seem to understand human nature. Right? This like they just don't seem to. And so. First, and, and, and I think that sort of clarifies my one point, which is that like you have to lean into it because we as human beings know when people are being weaklings, right? We can smell it a mile away and that's how Democrats come across, right? Just like, oh, no, 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 don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. And when we come across that way, we lose. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and, and so I think leaning into it's super important, being bold is super important. But my question is, how do we, the Republicans will come up with a counter narrative. They absolutely will, right? It'll be woke. How do you do that? How do you how do you counter that that problem? How do you counter that narrative without losing our our values? Well, I think it's about values. And I think what you what you say is, look, what being woke is, is basically about respecting all human rights, right? Making sure that you, we have universal rights, essentially, that people have dignity. What do you have against that? What's your problem with that? Why don't you want people to have rights mm -hmm. like that? You turn it around, right? You make That's it. That's what you, they always do. Right. We do it to them, right? Turn it around. Why? Uh, listen, there's, there's some things you just don't negotiate on. You can negotiate on climate change. You know, that's my issue. I'm really passionate about it, but I know that you can negotiate there. Okay. Maybe 12 years instead of 10 years, you know, we draw down carbon, but you don't negotiate on humanity. You don't negotiate on people's rights to be, you know, free and, and to have safety in their lives and all that. You can't negotiate that stuff away, right? I, we don't have the right to. And, and that's what we have to say, you know, like, well, okay, we don't want to give transgender people rights. Well, look, they're human beings, right? And under our belief system, we respect human rights. That's America. So what's your problem? Right? I mean, it, it, that's what being that's what being woke is to them. <clears throat> Let's not give everybody the same rights we do, essentially, yep. when it comes right down to it. All great points, and I want I want to hear from I want to hear from uh, Brent and Lila on this question because we've seen multiple examples of this. We see uh, there's every time somebody gets accused of some heinous things, whether you know it could be could be rape, could be uh, you know like this. There's there's a, there's some executive right now that's really under fire for having having uh, you know really like pretty much raped women, and and he's you, he's using this yeah. He's using this tactic of saying that he's I'm uncancelable and the woke mob is after me and and the same thing with uh you know with sports we have the you know the uh, is it Aaron Rodgers um, the guy who just he you know he, he's taking homeopathy won't get vaccinated and now he's claiming the woke mob is after him <laughs> what do we do what do we do what do we do how do we how do we counter these people uh, oh man God what a question I know um it's hard yeah it is hard I mean I think look I. It's, you know, I do think that there, there does have to be, I think there's this perception of wokeness that there are so many rules, right? That like, oh no, you can't, there, like, I think that there does have to be some sort of, and I'm not saying like, obviously we're not going to allow, you know, people who are raping people like into, you know, the woke tent with us, but like, I do, think <laughs> there, you know, there's like a, you know, um, uh, 
I don't know if you guys follow um, Anand Giridharta. Giridharta, our, fa- our favorite anti-philanthropy. He's on. Course. He's sort of a political pundit, and he's also written a book called mm. "Winners Take All." But like, he has a quote where he said something to the effect of, "There has there has to be room among the woke for the still waking." So I think that mm. I think that well said. Like, you have to, uh, like I said, there's. There's cutoffs, certainly. There are still people who are cancelable. Right. Um, but I, I do think there's also I think um there was a there was a story India Walton, who will probably I'm sure sadly talk about on this podcast at some point, said something to the effect of like, you know, she always introduces herself with her pronouns. And when she goes, she she told a story about like having gone to like um like a senior care center and used her pronouns to introduce herself. And then she went to go talk about senior care to them and then spent an hour and a half talking about her pronouns. <laughs> because <laughs> they questions. So I guess my point <laughs> is, and I don't know if this is actually an answer to the question, but like, I, I do think that like, I think part of the reason why people push back against wokeness is because they feel like there's just no place for them in, in that. There's no way for them to keep There's up. There's no way for them to keep up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as woke people, to a degree, you there has to be some allowances for yep. that or some teaching. Um, yeah, rooms for of, people or, to have time to be educated on the things that they can't possibly know because you don't yeah. know what the pronouns conversation right. is until someone tells you right. what it is. So let's also yeah. cancel that guy who's been raising, raising mean, women. You know, just to be clear. Right, right. To be clear. (laughs) And and frankly, frankly, who is fully woke? (laughs) Who's got it all figured out? I mean, we're all flawed. That's exactly right. I don't think that it's a question of everyone getting it right all the time. But it's it's a question of of that you're trying earnestly trying and there's a lot of people yes. who are earnestly not trying and they're and and not only are they are they not trying but they're bragging about it they're bragging about how <laughs> not woke they are and and using you know using inappropriate language things that they, you just don't have to do it like it's just mean spirited and this is the problem agree with that too i also think though that to some extent that's why it's so important that when we talk about what it is to be progressive that like joe's saying like we need to be willing to just sort of state that our our goal is is that everyone have dignity and rights that that is why mm-hmm. we do that is why we're doing these things that i think a lot of the time these conversations get divorced from their context where it's like yes. mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. in favor mm-hmm. of making me remember a ton of annoying pronouns or not and that's not really what that conversation is about the the conversation about pronouns is annoying to learn about, but also you're doing it to respect other people's dignity and rights. So like, if that's the goal, it's much harder for you to be like, well, I'm not in favor of people's dignity and rights than it right. is to be like, I'm not in favor of having to memorize 1600 different pronouns that I've never heard of before. Like those are very different kinds of asks. I was just gonna just piggyback on that a little bit because it, it I have a, uh, a a little story and so a family member of mine who shall remain nameless I suppose um, uh, is was or is I guess uh, in in opposition to um, to gay marriage right and LGBTQ stuff in general right um, terrible 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 and I've had I mean screaming matches on and on and on but one thing that really finally got there a little bit was when I really broke it down and I was like so let me let me be clear about one thing so you are saying that in society there's a one group of people should have these rights 
And this group of people should not have those rights. And by the way, it's a right that's so fundamental to our, our culture, right? Which is getting married, having a family, adopting children, all these things, right? So, um, and what my point, I'm bringing that up, and that was something that gave him pause. It gave him pause. I'm not saying it really changed his mind, but he hadn't thought about it that way is the point. Mm -hmm. And this gets to, and this is, and this is my, what I'm getting at is that making it personal, right? And, and that, that connects to the local elections thing. That's why people get along on local elections, because it's very personal. My street is going to have a pothole if we don't do X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to have a sewer, right? So when, and I think that when you can talk about these issues in ways that are very personal, for example, let me say, what if it's your daughter that is is raped, right? Because mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, what if what if some powerful person raped your daughter? Would you not want people to believe her, right? And so when you make it very personal like that, and so the question is, how do we do that? And I think that, um, I, I mean, I, there are certain politicians that are very, very just good at that. I think, um, I'll keep bringing up Bernie Sanders. I think he's very, very good at that. Um, I think Obama was actually really, really good at that, about communicating these ideas in way that are the ways that are very personal. I think that is the only way, perhaps, that you can disarm arm the mm. Republican machine because and, and, and it might actually include literally talking to people face to face right yes. I mean uh, those like a fireside chat type of sort of thing right instead and and, and and my last point and I'll move on and let someone else talk and that is the hue one of the hugest roadblocks of this whole problem and you you hit on this a couple times and it's so important is is where the money's coming from Right. Because yeah. you, it's no one you I can't have that conversation with a voter, that really personal conversation that really just gets down to brass tacks. If there's a big donor that says, no, 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 you can't use those words. Yeah. And that is the world yeah. we live in. That's the world we live in. I thought, yeah. I thought at really one the point in 2016, Brent said to me, campaign finance reform is the only issue that matters. And then I stole that idea and I wrote an op-ed so about true. it. And I've really been getting a lot of mileage out of that. But that's really, I think, the basic. You made any but money off of that? I, I haven't. Isn't that sad? Isn't that a girl <laughs> right now? For both of us. Right? I was just going <laughs> to ask for but I, I think that that is sort of still where we are, where like really when you get down to it, Campaign finance reform is voting reform. It is health care right. is all of these other gun issues. Reform. It's gun reform. And it's the so whole thing. Without reform, that, yeah. we can make these little piecemeal changes. We can fight back the NRA. We can fight back the insurance industry or whatever. But we can't ever create any sort of holistic, comprehensive plan for change with because we're going to be forever fighting off these like gnats. And we're going to keep blaming mm. like people who aren't very politically informed in like random parts of America who are ignorant for various reasons that have to do with them not having access or interest, you know, to mm -hmm. information. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not really, it's, it's, it's like how the, my use of the straws wasn't the problem. It was that Starbucks was distributing. Yes. Straws. It's like yes. that, it's that problem, you know, it's, we're, we're so, we're so eager to blame our neighbors because maybe they're idiots. And maybe mm -hmm. we hate being their neighbor. And maybe they put a fuck Biden flag up outside of their house as one of my parents' neighbors did. And, we <laughs> and like my mom's like ready to burn their house down. But in reality, he's not the issue. The issue is this larger system that allowed him ownership of that kind of problematic identity. And I think right. one other thing I would say before we move on is that I think it's really easy to frame socialist ideology as selfish, but people are just afraid to do it. It's really easy to be like, you get things when we when when socialist policy wins you get things this is about you i i am a socialist for entirely selfish reasons 
I cannot give two shits about everyone else's healthcare, but I would love to have some of my own that I can rely on that's consistent, that, you know, wherever I am in the country, that I have access to a doctor. Like, I, the, the reason that I embraced socialism in the first place was never for everyone else's well-being and because I'm a delightful person. It was because I saw that there would be tangible benefits to my life that would be reliable that I don't currently have in this system. And that was enough for me. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. I mean, it could be literally as simple as saying, you know, I don't want to step over people sleeping on the street, right? right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, selfish. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> I don't like the fact that LA has the largest homeless population in the country. That's inconvenient. I yeah. also well, like separately feel bad about how yeah. people's lives are destroyed yeah. by, with, by housing policy. Right. But at the same time, my life is better when we have housing policy that ensures that everyone has access to a safe and affordable home. Well, you know, it does go back to like the sus substantive issues. We're talking about, you know, skin, you know, a skin rash when we really have to deal with a cancer, which is a fact that our society is an oligarchy. And mm -hmm. that really That's is right. the fundamental problem. Because <laughs> and it's all about money. I mean, if you compare the United States to the rest of the world, yeah, we have shitty, you know, voter rolls, but we have the best number one by far in, in a, how much money is in the political process, right? Um, right. <laughs> with all this wealth, nobody even comes close. Like there, there is something really unique about the United States. Uh, this is really, I mean, I know if you guys, we've talked about the, the, the Princeton study in, in the show before. And if you look, you know, at the outcomes of our political process, it matches the will and desire of the corporate class and, 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 and not, not the people. people. No, I mean, yeah, definitely dominantly not. so. And that says it all, right? Totally. Well, <clears throat> so we are at this place in our show. We probably have maybe about 20 minutes. And I wanted to ask, though, Brent and Lila, what if you were dealing with Manchinima and uh, the January 6th <laughs> insurrection and you're Joe Biden and you're in the White House, like what, what's what should he do right now? What, what should Chuck Schumer do? What should Nancy Pelosi do? Like, what's They should already know what to do because they're the professionals. I feel like all day we're having yeah. to do their fucking job for them. Well, Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I wanted to say in regards to the January 6th insurrection, because I, I will admit to maybe not following that as closely maybe as I should be. However, obviously, you know, we talked about Terry McAuliffe earlier today and he's sort of like, you know, hung a lot of his campaign on running against Trump. Mm -hmm. It makes it harder to do that when the entire legal system and Congress has decided that maybe it wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I mean, like yeah. the, the, the idea that you're going to run a campaign against somebody who tried to, you know, overturn a fair election and there have been no repercussions for the people who tried to overturn said fair repercussions. It so, sort of takes away some of your political argument. Mm -hmm. So um, there's that. That's not an answer. There to is, question. yeah, but, um, a great point. I, I think. Um, I think for starters, if I were Joe Biden, I would, I would sign every single executive order that I could possibly sign that would like have some sort of tangible effect for people. Because one thing that mm. I think that a lot of people become, you know, upset by, and I think this probably drove a lot of, you know, so at least some of the voters away from Biden is that I think what, what people really are looking for is some, some, some kind of action. I don't think that um, people would care whether their prescription drug prices came down by 
um, a huge bipartisan vote or whether it came down from a decree from King Joseph Robinette Biden III. I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody cares. I'm not, you know, advocating for that, but like, you know, cancel student debt, right? They mm -hmm. sent out the, rest okay. they sent out texts to people that their student loans were restarting the two weeks prior to that Virginia election. And if you look at where most of his fall off was, it was with voters under 45. Voters over 45, he tracked pretty well with Biden. It was it was the it was younger people. Um, so I, I would do that. I would. What else would I do? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I think that um, people are often afraid to really aggressively go after. I, I think you should go to West Virginia. You know, Kamala went there at one point. I mean, I think that you really have to. West Virginia is swayable too, because Sanders has gone to West Virginia and had kind of amazing town halls there. Yeah, mm -hmm. people needed, in West Virginia need healthcare. He needed five minutes to talk a room full of people into right into being socialist. Yeah, it's a, a, for a union state like that. They could yeah. go and make yeah. the sale there. Yeah. It, it's not it's not hard. Yeah. Um, and then the only other thing that I would say, and then you. Kind of I don't know if I have any brilliant ideas. Well, you know, <laughs> one thing that Christoph that you said, and I think that this has been sort of absent from a, a lot of, although there there is you know some push to get the pro act through you know some some labor protections. I think that you know you were sort of like talking about you know class and the hierarchy, and I think that it's so easy for people to get into that headspace when they don't have any way to know that they are actually in solidarity with most of the people that they think that they are are better than mm -hmm. or are using, whether it's their race or using their <clears throat> education or whatever, to sort of prop themselves up over other groups. And I'm, I'm, I, I think that, like, at least to me, labor is how you do that. And I, I think that, like, we've we've seen more, you know, We've seen some more of these, like you know, class issues amongst the ninety-nine as our labor laws have been, you know, trashed over the years. So, like, I also feel like getting the pro act would have so many. It, it wouldn't just help people like make sure that they're being paid fairly. I think it would also just like it would put people who wouldn't otherwise maybe be in solidarity with each other in solidarity with each other. So I would do that as well because I think that that would have really long running pros. Um, for and might help rebuild the country. labor movement, which would help stave well, off some of this other money. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the thing about it is, is that if you actually look at this, like it would be pretty easy. And this is what this article is talking about that I, I just described it, but didn't really get into it. But this race class narrative, putting that together, the Democrats need to do that because what's happening is that it would be pretty easy to get... Um, black and white and Latino working classes in solidarity if it wasn't for the constant 24-7 messaging, right? But mm -hmm. that messaging does exist. And so what do we do about it? Like we can't, we might as well just like, if we're just going to give up and we say, oh, we can't deal with Fox messaging, then we just just give up now. Right. And so we have to be able to push back against that messaging and 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 create that unity between the, the white and other working classes, right? Another What's thing up? that the Democrats have tended to do messaging wise that has been frustrating, but like them, um, 
is that they will often put identity politics as a sort of to, to diffuse a conversation about meaningful change that would affect everybody. So they will they will opt for yep. the smallest version of a program that only affects black mothers who make under seventy five thousand dollars a year in the states of South Carolina and North Carolina. <laughs> and they'll tout that left, right and center, but they won't explain, they, they won't go after paid leave and in their messaging say, here's how this would affect black mothers. This matters to black mothers because of this. Here's how this would affect white mothers. It matters to white mothers because of this. When you're talking broad policy, when you're really willing to, to back bold policy, you can articulate why it benefits people in numerous ways. And you can do that in a way that makes clear that people actually all have the same needs for the most part. You can do that in a way that actually tangibly impacts lives across the economic and racial spectrum, and you can do it in a way that's good messaging. You can't do that if your plan is to like, instead of having free community college for everyone, have $500 of additional Pell Grants available to people, <laughs> because that isn't an issue that affects everyone. That's an mm -hmm. issue that only affects certain people. And you're not then messaging in a way that shows that your agenda is designed to embrace everyone's everyone. needs. Yeah. And I think you know, everyone wants to see that their particular issues are addressed in the Democratic agenda. And that's fair. And also, I can see why some people think that they should in particular get their needs addressed, because there are some people who get additional burdens placed on them by society that deserve additional addressing. But in messaging those things, the Democrats will often siphon off those voters and be like, see, we have this one policy that supports like no. Latina mothers. <laughs> And aren't we so special and aren't we so progressive because of this one very narrow policy? And they will not in the next breath explain what they're doing for all mothers, which no. is what the next part of that conversation is supposed to be. They will instead like that's a lead into a conversation about policy that helps all mothers, universal, universal yeah. policy. But they don't ever take that additional step. So everyone feels like they're just pandering and being annoying, especially because they never bother to pass even those smaller policies. And yeah. then also fewer people see the tangible benefits. So no one can explain what happened. You know, it's like under the um, under the Obama recovery plan, they very specifically designed all of the economic benefits to be invisible because they thought then people will spend them. Like some research told them that people would be more likely to actually like put that money back into the economy if no one told them they had it. But it meant that they couldn't message off of it because no one right. found out that they had gotten any benefits from that program. <laughs> and then they continue to see income inequality swell and they continue to see all these problems that, you know, continue to be part of their lives. And so there was no way to be like, hey, we did a thing for you that made your life better. Like that, that seems to be a, an impossibility in the democratic thinking frame of thinking. And they, they let themselves buy into stupid sort of misplaced, um, you know, wokeism essentially. Like they, they, they try to sound woke without being woke. And they do that by, talking about small policy instead of big policy and, well, and not doing either. <laughs> I mean, in effect, class solidarity, which is really what we're talking about is a near universal solidarity, the common ground that people have was canceled by <laughs> by a history, right? It was canceled by the Cold War and it, 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 it literally disappeared in this country. It's coming back now a little bit here. I mean, especially after the 2008, you know, uh, Great Recession, it's starting to come back, but it was really, it's not incidental that we don't have much of it. It really is, it's a, it's a function of history and it's a function of, of very key strategies to, to obscure it, right? Because it is so yeah. incredibly dangerous 
to the people who are truly in power because mm -hmm. it really is about getting everybody to think that we have common unity and bonds and common interests. Well, and it's I really have, what it is. I, and I have always said that that is it's it's that specific reason that they have been so scared of the both of the Sanders presidencies. Yeah. It, it, wasn't, Absolutely. it wasn't just like Definitely. the boogeyman of taxes. socialism. It was well, actually just it w would have been a true upending of power that that they did not want. That's exactly Good right. Sense. Yeah. In, in a democracy, okay, if you're the 1%, you have to get another 50% of people to vote with you. And right. what we're seeing, all of these tactics, you know, thousands of different tactics and narratives and, and taglines and everything else that they've used is how they do that. And so that mm -hmm. is, um, well, I think we have, let's see, I want to open up the floor. Joe uh, or Christoph, do you have any other questions you would like to ask? Go ahead, Joe. Well, I don't have anything uh, on my mind. Like, how do we get through? I mean, I think socialist principles, I think, is what we need, really. And maybe we need to repackage them so they don't have all that historical baggage. How do we do that? How do we get people to start to see that what socialism is, is really social well-being rather than you this boogeyman? If you're on TikTok, <laughs> everyone's a socialist. <laughs> when I was 16 and started calling myself a socialist, I got so many nasty comments from my classmates, like from people who had no baggage with socialism, they were 16. Um, and I have noticed that when you say that you're a socialist to 22 year olds, they're like, yeah, me too. Yeah, it's very different now. <laughs> like, yeah. As an educator, I've seen that. I've seen a yeah. huge change. I think to some extent well, they don't have they don't have you know you said that the reason that we don't have that anymore is because it was sort of banished to history and people don't have that there's no a lot of people are don't have that context any longer you know they don't have they the, don't the, they, they yeah. don't they don't they don't know the cold war but I think um, also mm -hmm. like, you know when you pull that a lot of these socialist issues are incredibly popular when you pull them independently and they're not popular when you call yeah. them socialist and I think that is part of what that you know when when we look at what kind of messaging we want to do and what kind of education we want to give voters because i think to some extent it's the responsibility of candidates to educate voters about why these policies make so much sense and why they would make a difference and i think we abdicate that responsibility a lot in races also probably for money reasons or also just for laziness and wanting to cooperate with larger party concerns reasons but i mean i think that to some extent just having you know, sort of a part of our political discourse on the left include an open embrace of the issue-based things that we know are really popular, that, you know, we know that Medicare for all is not just popular with Democrats because more people in the country support it than our Democrats. So we know that there is room to go and not just reach out to Democrats with that message, but reach out to Republicans with that message. I, I That's a really popular issue up in the rural part of upstate New York that my parents are living in. Why? Because agricultural workers and farmers don't have any healthcare and healthcare is really expensive if you run a farm because it's a dangerous job. And so I think we should stop worrying so much that the fact that the right wants to define us in this very polarized way um, requires us to sort of submit to that reality. I think we need to sort of assume it's our responsibility to educate voters about tangible issues and not worry so like look as my mom always says people can have terrible thoughts 
in, in private in their head. I just don't want them to say them out loud and I don't want them to act on them. But you can privately be a terrible person. I, I want you to vote right and I want you to be a responsible member of society. And if you want to privately think terrible thoughts, like that's none of my business. But I want to make it socially untenable for you to, to act on those thoughts. I don't want it to be socially tenable for you to, to think those thoughts out loud. And currently, you know, we're in sort of a situation where it's very tenable. People, everyone's having terrible thoughts all the time, all over society. Right progressives, Republicans, everyone. Um, some of us are vocalizing them more than others. And some of <laughs> us are acting on them more than others. Um, I think that we need to sort of make it so that our, you know, our, we're, we don't buy into this frame where just like there's bad people and good people and we only talk to ourselves and we try to educate Democratic voters about Medicare for all. I think that we should assume that these ideas have broader appeal and speak about them not as partisan ideas, but as good ideas that anyone could support. And then isn't it lucky when a candidate emerges who supports them, too? And maybe they happen to be a Democrat and maybe they happen to be a Democratic socialist and maybe they happen to be. They're not going to be a libertarian, but, you know, like maybe whatever their political identity is, isn't it wonderful when we start to see those ideas percolate outside of this sort of tense two party structure? I think that is a better goal for us than just worrying about what the Democrats are doing, because they're going to do it wrong. Well, I think there was also a recent poll that like got a pretty good amount of press about young people not caring about either of the not caring well, about the party system. I was saying, Brent and I left the Democratic Party years ago because we were angry and we live in an open primary state. And we just thought like, this is, I, I don't want Democrats who are acting in in opposition to my specific goals a lot of the time. I mean, this was at a time where they were definitely doing that. Um, I don't feel like I want them to say that they have me in their tent. I am a Democratic voter. I've been a Democrat my whole life. But like, I, I don't feel that that party is acting in a way that aligns with my principles at the moment. And so I think that a lot of younger voters sort of are entering the political system that way. I mean, I yeah, entered yes. the political system in a yeah. time where you had to pick a party because yeah. you had to vote in the primary and that was all you could do. We don't have to live in that kind of system in a lot of states right now. And I don't think that we should operate on, from a sort of political perspective. Progressives should not operate solely within the party system. They should have both sort of things working together. And a lot yeah. of our work is education, I think. We um, talk about this a lot, you know, in terms of strategic voting and all of that, because when you, ha you know, because it, it Again and again and again, the third party voters, whether it's Nader or Stein or whoever it is that have have screwed up elections and and really cost the country big time. And so, like, that's an issue. And it's hard to know because you're right. You're completely right that the Democrats are compromised. I mean, the the lobbying, the amount of money that's being spent right now by pharmaceutical so companies, coal companies, oil companies, gas companies is 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 insane. And it is just it is derailing um, Biden's presidency. And not to mention, it's also we're in a situation where these policies are popular. Like you said, Medicare for all, uh, climate, uh, you know, climate mitigation measures. Uh, these, are, these are popular policies. And because of the filibuster and because of the lobbying, it seems like nothing ever moves. And so it seems like these pop policies aren't popular. And so it's distorting when the yeah. dam finally bursts, mm -hmm. when, well, when, when, when the 70 percent of people who support these policies actually are heard and, and have them actually in, enacted, that is going to bode really well for yeah. future Democrats and future progressives. And, and I think it's it's important, not just because people are desperate for some of these things, like actually in their lives, like people are hurting right now. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about 
you know, our democracy being in danger. And I think that it is for a myriad of reasons. But, you know, I think we talked about this on our last podcast. But, you know, I think when you see some of these things and you as a voter have sent people, you know, and given, albeit maybe a narrow mandate to a party that can't get any of these things done. And then you're also asking for these people to be really invested in this democracy. I feel like it, 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 it could have bigger impacts by not doing any of these things that are popular because I feel like the response is going to be like, well, well, save this democracy for what? Right. Why yeah. bother investing <laughs> you know, in the I, trouble of saving a democracy <laughs> that doesn't work when it's theoretically working? And so I yeah. feel like there's I feel like it's dangerous to do nothing right now just because I feel like the, this country is in such a very dangerous. It's in a it's a yeah, it's in a it's in a tough spot right now. So like, I think it's yeah. just, we have to do it for people and we also have to do it just to, look like to save ourselves. Doing things. Right. And, and so. this has been said a lot where, you know, um, like black people elected Joe Biden. All right. That's just clear. And uh, so they save democracy. Right. And so what did they save it for if we can't deliver on these things? And that cynicism you know, our, one of our other guests, Jonathan Zucker, talked about how going in, getting into like 2028, we've got a generation coming up that's plus 16 progressive, plus 16 democratic, and um, you know, just in time for the for the elections to have been so gerrymandered and so uh, <laughs> completely ruined that their vote doesn't even matter. So that's that's the mm-hmm. danger. Yeah. Well, and we also we focus a lot on a voter's responsibility to the candidate, but very little on candidates' responsibility to their voters when we talk about elections. So when we talk, you know, I mean, I know you, you were just talking about independent voters in presidential elections. And I feel like a lot of the time we forget that like the candidates that were running at that time were like actively choosing not to speak to certain kinds of voters as they were running. They were choosing actively to run away from messaging that might have attracted a certain kind of voter. I think like with the Starbucks straw thing, we have to really be thinking about like, you know, if if we, if, if Democrats, if we as Democrats want to attract a broad tent and want to, uh, to, to win elections, we have to think it's our responsibility to reach out to voters. We can't assume that just because they're not Republicans, they owe us their vote when we're not reflecting their values in any way. And I think a lot of the time the National Party really doesn't understand that dynamic. The way that we speak about elections and the way that we speak about voters is almost as if a bulk of voters owe their votes to specific parties. And that isn't a way to get people excited. It's a way to get people to stay home because they're like, well, fuck you. I don't want to just show up to vote because you told me I had to, especially when you're not delivering anything when you actually get into office. Like if you're if, if we want to if we want people to buy the idea that this is complicated and hard work and so they're going to have to be patient for the policy, we have to be honest with them that we know that it's our job to do it and we know that they that, that it's our job to sell them. It's not their job to just sort of suck it up. Um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of our apathy issues have to do with the way that we see presidential races get framed in the aftermath and the fact that nobody seems to think it's anyone's job to reach out to voters. It's just (laughs) the voters' jobs to know what to do. Well, I really worry about that with younger people because we we have generations that are super progressive, super socially conscious, really, really cool young people, and they're just checking out because they're so frustrated. They're so frustrated. (laughs) And I really worry about that. I think it's a fair worry. 
Yeah, I think it, but I think it's something that the party has to know is their responsibility. It can't yes. just be a thing that people walk around saying those kids are so useless, which is always what happens with kids. Or they're they're right. already progressives; they'll vote for us. Right? They're they're right. not going to do that, you know. And and they're also not useless. They just no one is thinking about how they're experiencing the political system and what we actually need to do to retain them into our tent and not just in our ideology tent, but in our political tent. Yeah. It's important, I think, to, to look to face both perspectives, though, right? Because if you are a young person or a black person or, you know, anyone who has a stake, like I'm, you know, I'm not going to be around all that much longer compared to a 20 year old. Right. And so they have more of a stake in terms of climate, in terms of the future, the political future uh, of the country. Right. They have more years to lose and they have more. So it's like um there, there is a responsibility on the part of, of, of a generation to come up and say, hey, we're going to fix this. And and I would love it if the party would market properly because, you know, we're all in that, marketing, that right? <laughs> them deciding how to fix it won't include the party if the party doesn't want to be included. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think every generation wants to solve the problems that are facing their generation. But if you've, done, if you've not given them any avenues to do it, you can't get mad that they didn't want to participate in your in your plan. Like, yeah. that's, I think that's why I say, like, the thing we can control is the party messaging. We can't control how individuals experience their political lives or what they see as their options. You know, we we can we can try our best to show that the option that is best for them is to cooperate with this, you know, tent. But if we're not making that case to them, I, we can't be mad when they don't draw that conclusion just like out of thin air. Yeah. Well, we have covered a lot of ground. Does anyone have anything else? Uh, anything else they'd like to say? Should read Lila's book. Read my book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good primer on how to get involved in grassroots advocacy and actually get policy passed. So if you're somebody who's interested in making meaningful change, this is the story of how we actually got a bill passed for a specific healthcare need for a community that was being ignored um, in, in, in the sort of larger conversation about an important issue. So read it. Awesome. Definitely. And listen to Brain Trust Live. Yes. And the, yes. And the Radical Definitely. Secular. Yes. <laughs> that is our show for today. Remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Okay,